The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk. Hello there, welcome to The Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up this episode, author and Paris based Europe editor of the Sunday Times, Peter Conradi, on rebuilding Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris after the 2019 fire. Joan Scales on the success of Ireland as a film destination and on the ordinary homes that are used in film and television productions. Dr Frank O'Connor on the Derelict Ireland project and show regular Jennifer Sheehan on easy DIY hacks you can do this weekend. You can email us here at thehomeshow at newstalk.com or you can get in touch with me on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And remember, we're on the radio at eight o'clock on Saturday mornings uh, here on News Talk as well or on the News Talk website app powered by Go Loud. Now, on the 15th of April 2019, at around 6.30pm, a structural fire broke out between the roof of the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, in Paris. Now, by the time it was extinguished, the cathedral spire had collapsed. Most of the roof had been destroyed and the upper walls were severely damaged. Many works of art and religious artefacts were moved to safety early in the emergency, but others suffered smoke damage and some of the exterior art was indeed damaged or destroyed. Now, it's currently being uh, undergoing a complete restoration, which is due to be finished next year. So joining me now from Paris to check in on progress is Paris-based Europe editor of the Sunday Times, Peter Conradi. Peter, you are very welcome along to the home show. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the update on the renovation and restoration project? Yes, well, as you mentioned, the, the, the fire was in April 2019. Um, at the time, President Emmanuel Macron said he wanted it finished within five years. He wanted the cathedral back open again. Uh, at the time, people thought this is absolutely crazy. Experts were saying you need 15 years, 20 years to, to repair all the damage. He was adamant, and we're not quite going to make the five years, I think, but it'll be five years and a little bit. Um, and the expectation is that the cathedral will be open again to the public, whether to people who want to pray there or to visitors by the end of next year. Um, they've been making you know, considerable progress. I mean, the first couple of years after the, after the fire was essentially stabilizing the building because there was concern that the cathedral would actually would actually fall down or could potentially fall down. So an awful lot of work was done um, for that that first period doing that. Mm. Since uh, probably the end of 2021, um, they have actually started on the restoration process, which is which is just enormous in terms of the amount of work that's involved, the number of workers involved and the num- amount of materials that are involved. Now, what particular difficulties did the restorers face? Was a replacing all the wood because I, I read about this project to kind of get landowners and people who had kind of very old trees on their land to donate them to the restoration project. I um, That seems like an extraordinary effort in, in the days when we have steel and <laughs> aluminium and all the things that didn't exist when, when the cathedral was originally built. Indeed, yes. I mean, th- there, was, there was a big discussion um, after the fire while they were receiving while well, they were stabilizing the building, about how precisely they should restore it. I mean, this, and you know, this was the big debate. We've got 
all sorts of modern technology these days, the, the steel, iron, and, and so on. Why not use that actually to repair it? So it was, in a sense, a battle between the, the modernists, one could say, and the traditionalists, and ultimately it was the traditionalists that won. And the decision was taken, no, we're going to rebuild the cathedral exactly how it was, using exactly the same materials that we used at the time. And that meant, that meant an awful lot of wood. Um, they have chopped down now, or they will have chopped down, I think something like 2,000 oak trees. Um, it's a lot of oak trees and that's not it's not just any old oak tree you know they have got to be I think at least 60 foot high they've got to be a certain width you know there was an awful lot of quality control to source these 2000 oaks you know it's not just that they've had to um, get something like a quarry something like a thousand cubic meters of of stone and again it has to be precisely the right kind of stone mm. to match the the material that was in the cathedral to start with and and, and so on so you know a, a massive job but with the aim that when it reopens it will actually look exactly as it did inside um or as far as the structure of the building is concerned at least um before the fire and was it difficult to source the artisans needed? Because, I mean, it's one thing getting the wood and stone and all that, but but these are ancient techniques, you know, that need to be to kind of put back what, what was a thousand year old building. Was it able, were they able to source the right people to do it in France or did they have to go abroad? I mean, mostly they managed to get the, the, get them in France. I mean, it's 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 quite extraordinary if one looks at the at the, the list of various skills that are required to restore a cathedral. Uh, you know, they're mm. enormous. I must say, I, when I was sort of reading the lists in French, I was sort of struggling to think, what are what are all these names? What are all these people? What are all these kind of techniques they're using? I mean, you know, obviously. People who look after stained glass, for example, who restore the stained glass, of which there was an enormous amount in the building, I think something like 3,000 square meters of it. Fortunately, France still has, amazingly, a big stained glass industry. And there are a lot of people that are able to restore stained glass. And Mm. I mean, of all the stained glass restorers in France, I'm not quite sure what proportion have been involved in Notre Dame, but it's been a, a huge number. And I mean, and they are using precisely the same techniques, amazingly, as would have been used in the 12th century when the cathedral was built. How extraordinary. Um, you know, and ditto all these other skills of, of sort of those people who were able to restore the artworks on the wall, those people who were able to restore the stone surfaces mm. and so on. I mean, it's, it's amazing group of coming together of these very, very traditional skills, which which thankfully is, is, are still preserved in France. Now, they're possibly not on the same wages that they would have been on in the 12th century. So what <laughs> he, he they might miss the target of the opening. But what is the budget like? How much is it all going to cost? And is it going to be uh, come in on budget? So after the uh, after the fire, a an international appeal was launched for people to donate and there was a massive amount of money that was donated i think something like 340,000 donors stumped up some money um including some very very wealthy people within france itself and they initially raised i think something like 846 million euros um it looks like it's not going to be enough um but it's not it's not i think going to come in as hugely over budget as most 
as most public infrastructure mm. projects seem to do these days. Mm. I mean, they seem to have been, you know, keeping quite a close control of the finances. I think an awful lot of this project or the fact that this project has worked so smoothly is down to the guy in charge of it, who's uh, the former head of the French defense staff, General Jean-Louis Jochelin, um, who's in his, in his 70s now, but very, very agile, very determined. And he's been running, he's been running the whole thing like a kind of a, a military operation. I mm. mean, he's described it as being a combat mission. He's someone who's seen service in a number of, of, of very, very tough places across the world. But, you know, he's saying this is the toughest mission of his uh, career. And, you know, that includes making sure that it's, not only delivered on time, but delivered largely on budget. Well, there's quite a few projects we can utilise him on over here in Ireland, not least our children's <laughs> hospital, if he's, if he's free after, after all this is over. Peter, what do you think it is about Notre Dame? I mean, this, you know, the fact that everything, the money was put in place, the timeline has been maintained. There's an emotional resonance that people have towards this particularly uh, iconic building that perhaps they wouldn't have for any other church or cathedral that I can think of, possibly, you know, maybe the Gaudi one in, in Spain. But what do you think it is about Notre Dame that just makes people, you know, want this to, to all be done beautifully? Yeah, it, it, it's difficult to sum it up, isn't it? I mean, I think it, there's, there's so much about it. I mean, it's first of all, there is the physical presence of the cathedral, the, you know, the, the, the twin bell towers of it. You can, you can see it from an awful lot of places in Paris. And I, I think probably if you think of you know, what are the landmarks of Paris, obviously the Eiffel Tower is number mm. one, but you know, Notre Dame is up there, number two, number three or whatever. So I mm. think on one side there's the physical presence, there is the, you know, the, the role that it's played, I suppose, in French history. I mean, it was, you know, they started to build it in the 1160s. It took them about 90 years or so to, to, to finish it. But it's been sort of there at various stages in French history. It got sort of bashed around a bit during the revolution. But then when Napoleon came along, he insisted on being crowned as emperor there in, in 1804. You have the, the hunchback of Notre Dame mm. when that came out, you know, that kind of made it yeah. Central, I suppose, not just the French culture, but to you know, world culture. brought it to you know, a new, it, it, a new generation, and gave it a new it, outing. It, it, nearly, it, yeah, it, it did indeed. And I think, I think the key thing about it is, yes, it's fundamentally a religious building, but its appeal goes far beyond practicing Catholics. You know, mm. it's, it's a mm. secular symbol. It's a symbol of French history as well. Sure. Now, I was there uh, in the autumn, and and I'm heading over there again in May, and. Uh, I was struck by, you know, there's lots of hoarding around it. It's a huge footprint of a site. Uh, but they had bands playing, they had food carts, they had storyboards up. I mean, they managed to be stylish, even in the face of disaster. They've kind of made a tourist <laughs> attraction out of the repairs. Yes, I mean, it, it, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, if you if you were to go there now, you would see, I mean, I was there just a few days ago, and they've actually erected in front of the facade of the, of, of the cathedral, there is now a sort of a, a series of wooden steps where people would just sort of sit and, and watch. I mean, quite what they're watching, I don't know, because all the work is going on inside and you can't get inside. Um, but there is also, they have just opened a few weeks back, if any of your listeners are planning to come to Paris, there is a, 
a very, very good um, exhibition devoted to uh, the restoration of the cathedral, including an artificial, uh, sorry, a a, a virtual reality experience Mm. where I I didn't try it myself, but you can put on the virtual reality headset and you can actually (laughs) wander around inside Notre Dame. It's fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Now, what we are seeing from Paris uh, at the moment, of course, are is rioting and fires and all of that over pension reforms. Are, are um, Emmanuel and Macron's days numbered, do you believe? Or is this all going to blow over? It's all a bit chaotic. Macron is essentially is determined to tough it out. And I, I suspect that Macron you know, will succeed. He's a He's a president. He's going to be president for another four years. Uh, it's not that easy to, to displace mm. a president. So, you know, we'll have to see. Well, now, Peter Conrad, you always have a new book out. And indeed, you do at the moment. Uh, you have uh, Who Lost Russia? From the Collapse of the USSR to Putin's War in Ukraine. Peter Conrad, uh, Paris-based Europe editor of the Sunday Times. Thank you very much for joining us on The Home Show this morning. Now, Ireland has long been a desirable location for film and television projects and the industry continues to grow from strength to strength. Travel writer Joan Scales joins me now in studio to talk about our success as a location. Joan, you're very welcome back to the Home Show studio. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Now, we are flush from uh, the Oscar ceremony a couple of weeks ago. Now, not quite maybe as many awards as we'd hoped for, but the one big winner is... Ireland, and in particular, uh, the locations used for films and movies over the years that have become big hits. So Absolutely. talk to me a little bit about some of those. I know in your Instagram you were down in Anakal Island. I was, yeah. I went down to see where the Banshees was filmed. Yeah. And fabulous. And I've also been out to Inishmore and I also was in Enniscary when they were filming Disenchanted. I brought my niece there and oh. the whole thing, she's, she, it was a couple of years, it was, like it was a year, yeah, year two and a half ago. ago. Yeah, it was and, uh, summer she, 2021. She was only six and the whole thing done up like a Disney. It, it was, was a Disney film was, set. It was, it was amazing. completely magical. But there's two big reasons why Ireland is doing so well. In 1979, the Ballyfermer Senior College was opened, devoted to arts, music, theatre, film, animation, and it was a different way of educating people mm. in, into different spheres. So it meant that by doing that, we actually have a pool of talent in Ireland. Mm. And these are all people who are needed behind the scenes for film and TV. And then, of course, we have seven colleges now doing undergrad and postgrad courses in all the different disciplines that are mm. needed for film and TV production. So that really has put Ireland and on the map. And the tax breaks help as well, don't they? Yeah, we, well, we, we people probably hear that. Section 41. It was yeah. called Section 41 for a long time. It's now just called the, the Film Relief, Relief <laughs> Act. What that does is that allows productions up to 70 million to get tax breaks, corporate tax mm. breaks here in Ireland, which can be up to 34%. Now, I saw the Minister, Catra Martin, is pushing for that to be increased from 70 million to get more blockbusters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, when it comes to blockbusters, we have done quite well. I mean, uh, you know, incredibly Game well. of Thrones. Now, I, uh, that's filmed in a lot of places in Europe, but the whole Northern Irish thing there. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I could just go to Game of Thrones. That was seven years of filming in Northern Ireland. 73 episodes. 
And then what we saw in Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars was actually filmed in four locations in Ireland. Yeah, it wasn't just Skellig Michael. It wasn't just Skellig Michael. It was Donegal, it was Cork, it was uh, Kerry. It was four different locations. And Donegal did well out of it. But the thing about Skellig Michael is the, the tourism there since then is... Incredible. Extraordinary. And like as it, it was high enough to begin with because it's such a major and iconic place yes. to be. Let's move from kind of giant film locations on Ireland because that, that's um, one thing. Another thing is when um, street scenes or interiors are used in ads and videos and films. I'm watching um, The Dry at the moment, which is the RTE series. Yes, uh, I've and, watched it as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and that's it's kind of set yeah. in, well, it looks like a suburban house in Kleine. But um, do people, ordinary people's homes regularly feature on television and film? They do, they do. And I, I like you. I was trying to figure out where, where the dry is being filmed. It's, you know, it's really interesting to kind of it, figure it's out. It's suburban See, can, Dublin, yeah, isn't can it? You, yeah. Can you spot anything, you know? <laughs> and it's also like I was watching Smother as well. Now, yeah. I, I'm quite familiar with them. Um, with County Clare, my family are from there, and uh, looking at the locations in Ennis Time and then Ennis and all, you said, oh yeah, I know that. I, oh yeah. And then you're kind of saying, I wonder where that house was. But yes, film film companies do use uh, locations that have to be realistic. I mean, for normal people, um, the house that they used in Normal People, it was actually a former colleague of mine, uh, her house was used as, um, that was the home for Marianne during Trinity oh, Days. right, okay. And that was used. And then Shane Ross's family home was used in That's Normal right. People That's right. We had well. him on the show at the time because um, it, was an, it was his old family home and he was claiming it was, it was haunted. <laughs> it was so haunted. Oh. Hopefully it didn't affect the production. Well, well, actually, you probably appealed to them, you know, as well, yeah. you know, being in the film. So how do people get involved? Like, how are they chosen and, and can you put your own house up or how does it work? You have what's called location scouts. And these are people who go around looking for, they'll read the script and they have to read and read and read the script and figure out exactly what this the scenario around it looks like. So the very first thing they will always do is get the script and decide that, you know, in the script it might be a particular location, but it might not. It might be... Uh, it might be the surrounding might be in um, a college. It might be an outdoor cafe scene. It could be in someone's bedroom. You know, so they have to read the script first and figure out exactly what the location should be looking like and what, what they need to look at. Location scouts have met one or two over the years and my God, do they have a much better idea of Ireland than I do because they've looked down every nook mm. and cranny mm. and every side road and byway. And so... The location scouts are vital to any film because how it looks has to have the veracity of what the film or the TV programme yeah, is about. Yeah, and I suppose they have to make that distinction. Is it cheaper to build a set or use an existing yeah. house? And you get a kind of a patina maybe with being in somebody's home that you wouldn't get if you were building it from, from scratch or with plyboard. But in terms of the disruption, of that, I mean, it, do you get paid for your house to be yeah, used? Well, do they it, redecorate it? It depends. It totally depends. And there's no set price. You can't say it's going to be this per day or that per day or whatever. It totally depends on each each situation. Now, I have heard of um, places where they've removed absolutely everything from houses, repainted them and refurnished them in the way they want to do that. Wow. Yeah, that does happen. And uh, and so it, it really does vary. But we do actually, there are actually, there is actually a list of uh, where you can actually register your house 
or your property. It doesn't have to be a house. It could be property. It could be a yard. It could be a field. It could be something, you know, that might be of interest. So Screen Ireland actually have um, a register where you can register your property. Say you're interested in and location scouts can look there and have a look. Of course, the vital thing is photographs. So you can put up a load of photographs to show exactly what you have. Yeah. But every time it it will depend on, the fee will always depend on how long it's been used how long it's been used how much it's been used and the disruption of course well of course well I've heard of people who've had to move out of their houses for months at a time you know if you get lucky and then of course it could be well worth your while to move out (laughs) of your house for months indeed indeed okay well that's very interesting because it's kind of something that people you see even on ads on telly you know homely kitchens with mammies pouring things out or daddy's cleaning floors one of my favourite ones was the uh, do you remember that programme with Nidge and they had this great love hate love hate yeah yeah. one of the apartments they used was an apartment overlooking the Liffey down there in the financial service centre and when I walk by there I often look up and think oh my god that's exactly where that was filmed from. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, you can get your own house uh, if you have. And it doesn't have to be spectacular, Joan. I mean, just sometimes they just want a regular no, house. they just want an ordinary house. Yeah. You know, like like Marianne's home where she lived mm. when during she was her Trinity years. That was an ordinary house. It wasn't, you know, a big, it not have to be glamorous, yeah. spectacular. Yeah. It's about veracity, about it looks real and true and what it what fits in exactly with right. what's going to be Good. filmed. So Screen Ireland, if anybody uh, wants to go and have a look at that, uh, um, you can find Joan on Joan Scales Travel on Instagram and always a mind of information. Thanks a million for joining us Thanks again today. on The Home Thanks Show. Thanks for having me on. Now, my next guest, Dr. Frank O'Connor, co-founded the Derelict Ireland Project with his partner, Jude Cherry. The couple moved back to Ireland from Amsterdam in 2018 and were struck by the housing crisis, homelessness and the sheer number of derelict buildings and decided to set up Derelict Ireland as a passion project. You're very welcome to The Home Show, Frank. Can you tell me about the project, uh, which I believe began on Twitter? Yeah, that's right, yeah, well... We moved back to Ireland uh, late 2018 and uh, we came back, I suppose, we fell in love with Cork City and the friendliness of the people. But we were shocked by the, uh, I suppose, the housing crisis, the homeless crisis and the decaying heritage. And we started to realise there was a lot of vacancy and dereliction in the city. So we decided to do some research. And about 18 months later, we started a campaign and that was in June 2020. So we basically using Twitter um, over a year. We shared a derelict property every day within two kilometres of the city centre. So for, for a full 12 months, um, what we found was about 700 properties uh, vacant, derelict, uh, within two kilometres of Cork City Centre. And at the time, I suppose, uh, the local authorities were reporting about 95 properties within sort of a wider radius. So we were obviously, I suppose what we were trying to do is start a conversation about dereliction because we were, obviously, what we felt was that people had normalised it it was being accepted, and I suppose in the midst of a housing crisis and a, a homeless crisis, it was important to understand why there was so much vacancy in direction and what was possible to do with that. So the first thing was to start a conversation. Twitter was very much about that. Now, 700 properties that you found compared to the 95 that the Cork City Council claimed there were, that's too big a disparity to be explained by, well, they just didn't spot them. So is it to do with the definition of dereliction or ownership or, or what do you think marks that out? Uh, there's quite a few things, really. Um, I suppose they, 
I mean, we would argue the first thing is there should be a much more joined up approach across Ireland in terms of tackling vacancy and dereliction. Each local authority takes their own approach. Now, there is a law in place. Uh, there's a dereliction law in place since 1990, and that should be enforced. But at the moment, there's a lack of willingness to enforce the law. So there's a kind of approach where they'd rather talk to the owners and maybe not put them on the dereliction register and walk with them over a period of a number of years and hope that they can walk with them to actually a point where the property comes back into use. Now, that would be fine if we weren't stuck for homes uh, or properties for creative cultural spaces as well. So there is that cultural resistance from the local authorities and also from society as well. But also, obviously, there's always going to be discussions around their election stuff. But we, we were quite strict you now. We, we went about our model because we we're basically both uh, experienced in, in, uh, researchers. We work all over the world with people like the UN, European Commission, international governments and stuff. So we're quite used to, I suppose, working with policy documents and looking how it can be enforced. So for us, we went by the definitions and we found, like I said, 700. And I mean, it's what, quite was, what was on your list that wasn't on the council's list? Because, I mean, it's not like they well, missed one or two. There, there must be a different definition that they're using then, if that's the case. Well, no, I think their their definition might be slightly different. Maybe it is. I mean, we're walking by the, what's in the laws and stuff. So we're going by the kind of, I suppose, the definitions that people can look up in terms of what's uh, accepted. Now, I'm not sure what definition they're walking to. But like I said, there's just maybe a lack of willingness to mm. for them to include properties on the dereliction register because they feel it's unfair on the owners maybe or that it's basically... Uh, you know, something that maybe the owners won't be very happy about. Um, and, you know, like maybe they're right because a lot of these derelict homes that you see dotted around the country, uh, you know, they could belong maybe to a family where the owner has passed away, they're in a nursing home under fair deal, they um, oh, kind of got passed down on farmland, they can't be occupied by anybody else except family, oh. family members and maybe families just just want the the house on the land and they don't want to be passing it over and doing it up and getting grants oh, and refurbishing absolutely. it. There are those examples and we went into a detailed study so to support Twitter Trout and um, my partner Jude went through all the publicly available data for the first 340 properties that we looked at and from that then she went into all the data and we basically started debunking the myths. So there are those situations uh, Sinead but they're actually a very very small number you know so that yes you know, if you go, I mean, the data is available for people to look at. We've published a report. This is Derelict Ireland, which was published in um, two years ago. And that kind of was a big game changer in terms of people's, um, how it would be normalised. So we debunked a lot of those myths. So, yeah, there are obviously genuine circumstances, mm. but they're a small percentage. And I suppose what we need to look at really is we moved from the Netherlands to Ireland. And in the Netherlands, they also in the past had vacancy and dereliction issues, but they tackled it. You know, obviously, to start the process, people went out and protested, and they protested and protested and protested until the change started to happen. But the Dutch now have a very different approach. So they also have people like that, which in circumstances, people dying, family issues, etc. But they have actually taken a very different approach. For them, every property should come back into use as soon as possible. So they don't allow this to happen. Mm. And I suppose in Ireland, we've allowed it to happen. And like I say, if we weren't in the middle of it, huge housing emergency, maybe we could accept the fact there would be a lot of vacancy in dereliction. But, yeah. but also, well, <clears throat> it's very important to think that if, if it's within two kilometres of the city centre, it's where all of us live. Now, we do nine shows to live in the city centre as well. So in streets like ours, there would be a lot of empty, derelict, decaying properties, which are really taken away from the from the street. It makes the place less safe. 
But also, obviously, it stops people having homes, you know, as well. So people are living in hotels and passing derelict homes every day. So there's a much bigger social and cultural issue to do with this as well. Indeed. But is it possible, Frank, to identify the owners of every property that you pass? Now, I can understand the ones where you've got, you know, a kind of, it was formerly commercial property and it's been boarded up because the business went bust. But is it possible to identify the owners? And and then separately, what do you do to encourage them? We can't just take houses off people and take land off people. I mean, we've, we've a whole cultural history there and it would be a very brave politician that would step in and do that. So yeah, do, you, do you use carrots? Do you use sticks? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, no, we found there now, I suppose, that's a good question. I mean, the, um, the local authorities were saying they were having difficulty finding owners and they sort of listed certain properties. They couldn't find the owners. We were able to find the owners really, really quickly by knocking next door asking the neighbours. So, so we took an approach where we went down the streets, we walked the streets, and so we found out the owners quite quickly. The other thing we noticed as well, a lot of properties, they say they couldn't find the owners. As soon as they put a notice up inside the property to do with their election, the owner turned up generally within 24 mm. hours. Mm. So the owners are around, but also in terms of what you can do, I mean, we're not advocating to take properties off people, but there are measures like compulsory usage, you know, which can actually basically, so, you know, if you have a property, you should, be, you should rent it. If it's a vacant property, and bring it back into you so you get paid for it, you don't lose the property. And obviously, if you don't want to do anything with the property, it's derelict, if it's a nice or if it's falling onto the street, then obviously we could bring in uh, measures like compulsory sales. And that's what they've done in the Netherlands. So they have a very strong taxes around having properties or sites lying into. Mm. But they've also got measures to bring it back into use. And also, you've got obviously incentives as well, which obviously a lot of what we've been doing as well is we did a detailed uh, report for the Oireachtas and we presented a policy toolbox. And that's a mixture of I suppose, carrots and sticks. So we've gone and recommended to do things like compulsory sales and compulsory rental, but we've also pushed for different types of support mechanisms. And we've seen that in the last year or so, based on our work, where the government have bought in um, sort of a grant from Crecona for derelict. And very generous they are too. So why aren't they, people availing of them then? They are beginning to avail them because I remember that I was speaking to recently because we try and kind of speak to all people, I suppose, across the spectrum. So speak to builders, developers owners and um, speaking to builders recently and they're finding that a lot of people are beginning to use them and stuff, you okay. know, and I think it is starting to kick in. But obviously, it's, it's we were in such a position, I mean, like Cork City's gorgeous, right? And to realise when we walked around and see people on the streets and see all the vacancies at our election, that actually it takes time to turn around such a large number. Mm. And mm. you've got to remember, when we did the study, we didn't really zoom in fully on the city centre itself because it was in the middle of COVID and we realised a lot of properties that might be like say genuine circumstances so so we didn't include over shop we didn't include some of the shops either and stuff because we felt that we needed to give the owners a bit of time so, so it, it was a kind of I suppose a point where it was gone to an epidemic level so it takes time to turn that around Indeed. so the grants are beginning to work but okay. they will take time but I suppose we would argue all the time you need other policy measures as well you know that you know it's not okay to leave a property Bacon. Whatever about the private houses and identifying the owners, as you say, with the minute you slap a notice on the door, they turn up. Um, th- there is up to 75 ghost estates, which were built during the boom, never mm. got off the ground. 40 of them are entirely unoccupied uh, and the others are partially occupied. Now, a lot of them are either owned by NAMA or mm. companies they've passed it on to uh, or the state itself. What do you think? Uh, finally, Frank O'Connor, that should be done with those properties. I mean, it's a 
good question, Sinead. I mean, I've I've documented quite a few of these as well. And um, I mean, Cork alone, now again, if you take Cork City, right, there was two amazing ghost states in Cork, just outside the city, in one of the most affluent parts of the city, so really desirable. In fact, one of the states has got four beautiful homes, which would probably sell for somewhere probably 750,000 to a million, I'm guessing, you know, each. Mm. And they've been lying there since, since the crash. Now, for me, it's a crime really against society to let those. They were one of the ones where the developer went burst. So I know the story behind those. And they've obviously, like I said, gone through this whole route of NAM and the government and stuff. But really, we should be using those. You know, mm-hmm. whatever about the long term, about ownership, those properties should be, they're, they're basically so close to finish. They've even got solar panels on the roof. You know, these are yeah. really... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they could be kind of turned into A and B rated homes kind of very, very quickly overnight. Very quickly. All right. OK, well, listen, lots and lots of work to be done there, um, Frank. And congratulations on the project, because it's obviously a passion project. You're not getting well, paid by the government to do this. Listen, thanks a million, uh, Frank, uh, for that very interesting information. You're very welcome back to the Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. And I'm joined now once again by friend of the show and former Home of the Year winner, Jennifer Sheehan. Jennifer, you're very welcome to the podcast studio. Delighted to be here. And we're going to talk now as we're coming into the holidays and the Easter weekend is coming up and people will have a little bit of time in their hands maybe and they can get some stuff done around the house. You're coming to us now with, you claim, <laughs> easy, straightforward, anyone can do them, DIY hacks to spruce up your home without needing lots of experience or tools. Yes. What I are we promise. starting with? We're going to start with your shower door and I feel quite strongly about this You've been in my bathroom. Say. I have to say, <laughs> I've been in enough Irish bathrooms to know that we're in trouble. We just don't really have nice shower doors. I really, really struggled with this when I was doing up my own place because I had the bathroom designed to perfection just the way I liked it and trying to find the perfect shower door to go with it was was really expensive if I wanted something nice or if, something I, if it was something I could afford plastic, chrome, you know, just not nice. So annoying. Okay, there's not a lot of choice out there because sometimes you're restricted with the space. You have to get one of those bifold things or, you know, not everywhere is the luxury of an opening outdoor or, you know, one of those walk-in things. So what have you, what are are you recommending? You'll have to do it yourself because there just isn't really a market there for for those middle ones. So what I found is, especially if you have one of those, you know, kind of chromey or aluminium-y doors, or if you have one of those uh, plastic, white plastic or whatever it might be, it's very easy to redo it. I touch it up and make it look very expensive at minimal cost. So what you do is you need to prep the area and this will take most of the time. So maybe you do this this weekend and, you know, you can buy your materials and you finish it off next weekend. It's if, the way the boring work takes longer, doesn't it? Yes, and I think that's crucial for everything that you okay. do. In DIY, patience. the patience, preparation, think about it, test it, and you'll save yourself so much time in the end. Okay, it's really worth it. So, what you do is you lightly kind of wash and sand the area that you're thinking of of repainting, right? So, if it's that little chrome strip or if it's that plastic bit or whatever, you sand that down and you and you wash it and you make sure there's no bits sticking out and there's no um, there's no dirt. Then you tape off the rest of the glass with some frog tape. So that's that's painter's tape. Then you look for a primer. So the easiest thing to do here is spray, right? Because it's it's a very small area. It's it's much, much easier to use spray. And the thing to use is Rust-Oleum. So it's in Woody's. Uh, it's, it's a spray paint and it's perfect for this kind of job, perfect for the shower. So you, you spray on a primer, you leave it dry a little bit, 
best if you can to wear one of those masks mm. for using a spray Especially just for a bit of safety. Especially if you're in the bathroom because, yeah. you know, you're going to be in an enclosed space. Maybe okay? turn on your doctor and then you leave it and then you spray on a coat of the, the paint over it. So I'd love something like a matte black maybe or you could even get, you know, a brass effect or something like that. Uh, again, Rust-Oleum, an all-surface one. I checked Woody's this morning. They have it in there uh, online at least. And then you remove the painter's tape before the paint is dry. This is crucial, otherwise it'll crack off. And then you have a beautiful upgraded shower door for... Right. Yeah. Okay, you do make it sound simple. It, it, it really I is. I give it a go. That easy. But yeah. what, so so you're getting a different colour if yeah, you want. Because there's not much to a shower door really. You know, the bits that you want to change are those bit those strips along the edges, yeah. you know, of, of white plastic. And that'll or stay on now with all yeah. the steam and water. Okay, yeah. very good. Just look all for the right. either the all surface or look for a waterproof one, but but all surface is good. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very so that's cost. straightforward and gives you that kind of nice look. And then yeah. you're looking around the rest of the bathroom and you're going Oh no! I need new taps. And <laughs> I need new tiles. <laughs> Match it to what you have, unless okay. you want a much bigger job. That's next now, weekend's problem. The next one we have spoken about before because it is so popular. Yeah, everybody is doing this at the moment um, to varying degrees of success. You claim it's straightforward. I say get a man in. It's panelling. And there's so many styles that you can do it in. So adding panelling to your walls or your doors or maybe even your kitchen cabinets or your wardrobe doors or whatever it might be. It is very straightforward. You can upgrade it very easily. Uh, it doesn't require that many tools. You just, you know, a little saw maybe if you have one or you can borrow one off a neighbour. Um, and that's really kind of the, the most, you know, the, the, the most out there thing that you need. So Panelling, what we're talking about is, you know, those beautiful old, maybe Victorian walls. They've got kind of square shapes oh, on no, them. Oh, it's or, lovely. And, yeah. and just that whole inset piece, it makes walls, I think, look higher. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, instead of crowding it and then you can set a picture in the middle and the whole thing gets set. It looks beautiful. And it adds some depth to a wall. So yeah. it's a great way of adding kind of texture depth, but not necessarily bringing in more colour if, if you don't want to do that. So it is very easy. What you can do is, first of all, measure out where you want to put it with masking tape. And you don't have to go Victorian style. You can, you know, more modern, maybe just straight lines or those bigger kind of square boxes um, or some geometric shapes if you're artistic, go for it. Measure out where you want to put it and then you go and you buy lengths of MDF wood in the, the width that you wanted in. Yeah, no, this kind of beading, it isn't terribly expensive because it it's only buttons. like white deal or, yeah. you know, some kind of plywood or something like that. Yeah, it comes in really long lengths and you just make sure you buy, you know, as long as you need. Uh, make sure you have it measured out where you marked it off. <laughs> Again, measure, the prep measure it three times. Bit. Prep okay. it, prep it, prep it. Then the best thing to do is buy no nails glue. Now, because does this that is very work? light. It works brilliantly. It's absolutely fantastic. It, it works really, really well. It's so easy and then you don't even need a hammer and a nails. And what you're talking about attaching to the wall here is so light. You know, it's not going to... It's That's not going to true off. because yeah. it's only that little strip exactly. of beading. So, okay. And yeah. if it falls off, you stick it back up again. Exactly. Okay. Grant, so, so that's really important then to prep that. Yeah. And again, before you paint it up, because presumably then would the trick to be to paint the whole wall yeah, the so same colour? Yeah, so this is colour. crucial. Yeah, okay. that's crucial. In, in your preparation, make sure that you either have paint that exists um, or that you have enough to kind of repaint it in a whole different colour. And if you do have enough paint to paint it the same colour as the existing wall, just test it on a strip first and make sure it comes out the same colour. Because sometimes paint on different surfaces can look a little bit different. Mm. So if it's on a plasterboard wall versus a piece of wood, it might not be the exact same. So just think about whether that will work and or whether you need to repaint the whole thing. Now, is it a little bit tacky to kind of paint it a different colour? That wedge would kind <sighs> of a look. Yeah. Up. 
Um, I won't throw out the word tacky because I'm open to what everybody what everybody wants in your house. That's absolutely fine. I don't know if it would be for me. Says the woman with the glitter bottle in her loo. <laughs> How dare you? I could see, you know, something like a blue wall with a bit of white that kind around of it. Thing. That could be really yeah. nice in a certain area. Maybe in like a sunlit room with a conservatory. That could be could be okay. quite nice. Yeah. All right. Stick to stick to these is what I say. I'm not okay. certain about that one. Great. Yeah. The panelling though, I like so here's my question then. Do you avoid you know, the sloping uh, walls because panelling <laughs> yeah. up the stairs can be lovely or, under, you know, that space yeah. under the stairs. But actually now you're into geometry, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> well, the things to, to be really careful of there for, again, measure it out perfectly with your with your masking tape. And if you have, a you know, a level and a ruler and a measuring tape and everything like that. And then just, you know, be confident that you're able to cut the, the strip of wood itself at an angle so that the cor- the corners of it will join up. Yeah. 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 So you oh might need God. your do you flashbacks to you parallelograms in maths and all that kind of stuff. All right. OK. Now, uh, another one. Now, I think even I could do this. And indeed, I have. You'd yeah, be delighted to hear. Delighted Give to us hear the that. next top DIY tip. <laughs> so easy. Anyone can do this. Swap out your handles. It has such a huge, huge impact. Doesn't it? Yes. It's such an easy thing to do on wardrobe doors, kitchen cupboards. Yeah. Even your front door if yeah. you're very handy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they're easy enough to come by. They're easy enough to come by. So I got, I did this. I got mine in superfront.com. Uh, Woody's has a few as well. <laughs> I keep throwing out Woody's, but it's an Irish company. Um, knobs and knockers in Dublin. There's loads on Etsy. There's loads of them on Etsy. Um, and then Oriana B, other, another Irish uh, company, I found loads there online. They're beautiful stuff. Now, there is one thing you do have to be aware of, I know to my cost and experience, is that the holes don't always they don't line always up. They don't always line up. This is kind of annoying. So maybe, for example, if you have longer handles mm. on your existing kitchen and now you want a knob. Want a knob or something. Mm. Yeah, so again, if you're doing that, you need to make sure that you have the paint for your existing uh, door or wardrobe or cupboard or whatever it might be, uh, the hole that you're going to be filling in is really, really tiny. So what you do is you go out and you buy something like polyfilla, some kind of putty. And that comes in lots of different shades, especially if it's wood. You know, if you're swapping it out on your on your kitchen doors and they're wood um, or your wardrobe doors, there's lots of different shades of, of wood uh you know, effect available in, okay. in polyfilla. So go and find one that you think will match best. And, um, and just fill it afterwards. And you just fill it out. Okay. So you okay. just a little okay. scrape or two, a little Good knife idea. and you Good fill idea. it in. And actually, and IKEA have a lot of those little um, knobs and handles they do as actually, well. Yeah. Um, so does, anyway, there's loads. Once you go find, it's one of those things that you think, where in the name of goodness would I get a handle? And then suddenly you you see them everywhere, <laughs> you know, when you go looking for them. All right. Yeah. Now, uh, so another one, uh, last one now, a little bit ambitious here, yeah. I would have thought. Now, listen, I did this once with a broken arm. So if I can, it, it's not that hard as it sounds, <laughs> but you do need a staple gun for this. That's what made it very, very easy. Now, they're available in okay. loads of different hardware what shops. What are we doing? Uh, we're recovering chairs. So I had a set, <laughs> in my previous place, I had a set of four pretty basic looking dining chairs. One of those ones that had the hard backs, they were wooden, and then the little cushioned seat. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the cushioned seat. You know, somebody had had them before, there was kind of stains on them, they weren't for me. So I went and I bought uh, four different types of material. This was back in my more mismatched maximalization type <laughs> friend's interior look <laughs> that's what I was going for I'm certain I was influenced by that um, so uh, you can obviously buy all the same material whatever you like in, in a fabric shop I bought about a square metre per chair that was probably a bit much but anyway you know, measure it out and what you do is you turn your chair upside down and they're usually just screwed in those little cushion seats are screwed in now sometimes they might be glued on 
and you might need some time solvent to to get rid of it. So that might okay. be a step too far. But if you find that your that yours are just screwed on, then it's but you very may not easy. have to take the the chairs apart. Then is what you're what you're saying. Well, you mightn't you, have to. You undo just them have completely. to unscrew the seat. Okay. The rest of the chair is, is untouched, so there okay. isn't anything massive in it. You just you know four screws at the bottom, and the seat comes off. And what you do is you lay your fabric down flat on the floor. You turn your cushion seat upside down on top of it, and then you fold over the ends of the fabric onto the, mm. the seat and you staple it in and you do the sides first and then you do the corners and you fold I them I love in how you're deep. literally doing that in front of me I'm on radio <laughs> with all your hand signals. <laughs> Can everybody see what I'm doing? All yes, done. All it looks fabulous. <laughs> it looks fabulous. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you stretch it out over and then you just actually the staple gun you can get a bit kind of obsessed with that. I you? have done yes I've done a lot of things with my staple gun. Yeah. Once you buy one it's kind of hard to hold back. It's Great for the, the Christmas Early in the morning outside. now Jennifer yeah. we won't go there. Right. Okay. So so that and actually you get a completely new look and yeah. if you were to sand down the chairs and maybe repaint them yeah. you'd, you'd really have, a, have yeah. a whole new kind of dining set there wouldn't you? Yeah if you had gone you know spend heavy with your with your painter from your from redoing your bathroom you could have all sorts of lovely colours and again it's just a light sanding spray it down with some primer spray over it with the with the paint I mean paint is magic really. Well, no excuses there. That is a fantastic set of things. Sure, you wouldn't recognise your house after the Easter. It'll all be done. Uh, Jennifer Sheehan, thank you so much for coming in with those tips. You actually made them sound fairly straightforward. <laughs> Don't come at me now. From me. <laughs> <But it's> <laughs> I'm delighted that you're here. Thanks a million. If there is anything you'd like us to feature on the show in the future, a topic or a guest or anything you'd like us to cover, please get in touch. We love hearing from you. Uh, the home show at Newstalk.com is the email address throughout the week. Uh, and of course, you can drop the show a text at 53106 for 30 cent. You can listen live on a Saturday morning at 8am and of course we are here on podcast 24-7. Thanks to Aoife Breen producing today on sound Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy and we'll see you next time. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk.